Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, welcome to the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Chip Conley. For those of you who do not know Chip, not only was he a Stanford graduate, but also received his MBA from Stanford. But more importantly, he started the Joie de Vivre hotel chain, which he managed as CEO for almost 24 years, which was a group of about 50 boutique hotels. He then sold the company and actually ended up being an advisor to the founders of Airbnb and became head of global hospitality and strategy for several years. He also amazingly founded something called Fest 300, which curated 300 festivals around the world. Chip has had always an interest in how to live a better life, not only for himself, but also for others. As a result, when he quote unquote retired, He started the Modern Elder Academy, which, as he describes it, is the first midlife wisdom school, initially in Baja, California, and more recently in New Mexico. Today, we're going to talk about, one, some of his books, which have been bestsellers, but also what it means to be a modern elder and how having insight changes everything. So thanks for being with me today, and uh, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for coming on board, and I really appreciate it. And I know you're working with our mutual friend. um, What is our mutual friend? (laughs) Uh, I don't know which mutual mutual friend you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, there are probably many. Uh, Shoot. The virtual reality. Uh, Gosh, Jack Abbott or Jack? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, it's Jack Abbott. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, thanks for uh, <laughs> well, thanks for being with uh, me here today. One of the things I'm trying to do is to sort of understand sort of people who I respect and whose life is sort of related to being of service, compassion, kindness, and not only the obvious effects of those actions on others, but the effects on themselves and also sort of the story of how they got to be who they are in the sense of almost everyone, uh, our childhood affects who we are. And, uh, you know, maybe we could start there and you could tell me, and I do know some of it since you have, I have talked before, but maybe you could share with our listeners sort of your own view of growing up and perhaps some of the lessons or pain that you had that affected who you are today? Well, first of all, it's an honor to be with you, Jim, and to be with your listeners and and followers. I grew up in Southern California. I was born five miles from Disneyland in 1960, and I was the firstborn of two firstborn. My parents uh, were both the firstborn in their families. I was the firstborn. I'm the only son. And so I was known as Stephen Townsend Conley Jr., a chip off the old block. So Chip was 
my nickname because I was Stephen Jr. And my father is a larger-than-life character. He's still living. He's 85. My mom is turning 85 in January. Will be turning 85. And my dad was a Marine captain in the reserves. He was... He was a pretty. He was a bit of a John Bircher, pretty pretty conservative Republican, strong willed. I did see him cry occasionally in John Wayne movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, that's probably that's probably the only movie that somebody with that background would ever cry at, right? <laughs> he loved True Grit. I mean, like you know. So long story short is I grew up with a father who was my baseball coach, and I was the star pitcher. He was my Scoutmaster in, in Boy Scouts. He was an Eagle Scout, and I became an Eagle Scout. Um, I went to the same high school as my father. When he was there, it was a predominantly white school in Long Beach called Long Beach Poly High School. When I went there, it was, I was the curious white boy because it was definitely not a predominantly white school. It was an inner city school that had a pretty good academic program as a public school, but it was the number one feeder school for the NBA and NFL. And so I loved it. And I played basketball before I went to high school, but in high school, there was no boy, white boy don't jump um, or white men don't jump. <laughs> and, and I, so I ended up playing water polo and swam, which is what my father did at that same high school many years earlier. And then I went to Stanford. Guess where my parents met? At Stanford. At Stanford. <laughs> so if you look at my path, I, I had two type A parents, firstborn. I had a father who wanted me to be the better version of himself. I was on a very narrow path in terms of, okay, Chip, here's what success looks like. Here's your success script. We have issued it to you and now you know read your role properly. Deep inside me, I knew something was amiss here. I mean, I knew that I could never be the better version of my dad, although I did wow, did I do a great job up till college, pretty much living that way. When I went to college, I played water polo at Stanford as my dad, as did my dad. And I joined a fraternity, but I didn't join my dad's fraternity. (laughs) So the rebel starts up. But basically the balance of my college years was becoming more and more rebellious, taking mushrooms every weekend when it was not fashionable, having hair that I put into a Peter Frampton, you know, kind of like long curls. I went overseas for my junior year of college and I just learned how to play guitar and and basically be a nomad. And then I came out as a gay man uh, between my first and second year of business school when I was 22 years old. And so, you know, the path that I was on at that point, I was no longer the chip off the old block. And I will say that the part that was really liberating about coming out, and again, I came out in 1983 when I was 22 years old. It was the summer where AIDS was on the cover for the first time of Newsweek magazine. So it was not an opportune time to be coming out, especially in New York where I was working for the summer. But the liberation was this element of like, I no longer have to be the better version of my dad. And over the next two, three years, I really stepped to my own path, into my own path. I I took a job instead of working for Morgan Stanley, who I worked for that summer. I took a totally radical, weird job where I got paid $2,000 a month out of Stanford Business School, which is sort of impossible to imagine. And um, 
And within two years after that, I, I started a boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre. And, and part of the reason I started that company was because I knew I was good at design. I knew I had a good eye for design. I was empathetic. I loved being in service. And I was a good social alchemist. I knew how to how to mix with people and how to mix as a mixologist of people. And all of these are qualities that I think are really important for uh, a, a profession that was just getting off the ground. Boutique hoteliers. I was one of the first boutique hoteliers in the U.S. So here I was at 26 and that's what I did. And that's, that's my, my, my upbringing that took me up to my first uh, company that I started. Well, that's interesting because I, I, and I've heard you, and I think you've told me some of these stories about how you interacted with the staff. And as you know, some uh, jobs in hotels, they're not particularly nice to the staff and they don't pay them very well. And therefore they have constant turnover. What was your formula that was different that actually made people want to work for you and with you? Well, I, I gave a TED talk on this in 2010 after having gone to, to Bhutan to study their gross national happiness index. Um, I, I still have a, a woman from Vietnam who I talked about in that TED talk. Her name is Vivian, who's been working with me now for 37 years at my first hotel, or 36 years crazy that she's that been that loyal and the bottom line is how do you help create a sense of meaning for people but i'm a big believer in maslow's hierarchy of needs i wrote a book about that called peak how great companies get their mojo from maslow and the hierarchy of needs for an employee is the base of the, the pyramid is money and compensation that that's what their survival our, our employees survival needs are but that's a commodity it's important to pay well but it is also important to know that that alone is not the thing that that creates a sense of meaning for someone. The second level of that this employee pyramid, this hierarchy of needs for an employee, would be uh, recognition. How do you create a, a, a culture of recognition? And how do we how do we say thank you and show gratitude, like as part of the basic culture? And then thirdly, the top of the pyramid is um, the idea of meaning. How do we create a sense of meaning? And one of, one of the things we did that with Vivian, who's been a housekeeper in, and a, now an executive housekeeper in that first hotel of mine in San Francisco, and ultimately we, we created 52 boutique hotels all in California as part of my company, Shawada Vive. She said, listen, you know, housekeeper doesn't sound right. You know, let's, what if we're like the peace of mind police? And, and she's Vietnamese. So, I mean, like for her to actually come up with this was like crazy. And what we did is we did a brainstorm with all of the, <clears throat> the maids and housekeepers to say, we don't want to call you a maid or a housekeeper. What would you like to be called? And so it was starting to think that way. And I was a big believer in Herb Kelleher, who was for 37 years was the founder and C uh, one of the founders and CEOs, uh, the founding CEO of Southwest Airlines. And he always said, you know, the customer comes second. It's the employee who comes first. And that was really my philosophy as well. And I learned it from him. The idea that if you treat your employees exceptionally well, they'll treat your customers really well. And in the end, your investors will be better off for it because you'll gain market share. And bottom line is, I believe the investors come third. And but for a lot of companies, the investor co investors come first. And um, in that scenario, it isn't necessarily a scenario that is toxic or it doesn't have to be. But the problem with that scenario is the people who actually most could use the compassion and support 
are the line level workers who often are earning, you know, a meager hourly wage. And so we paid better than most other companies. But, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, where most of our hotels were, is a very expensive place to live. So we looked at all kinds of other perks we would do as well. So bottom line is we had, you know, one fourth the employee turnover of our competitors. So people stuck around because they just felt loved and cared for and they liked the culture of the company. Well, you know, it's interesting because common sense and logic (laughs) and, of course, science would tell you that's just correct. Why do you think it is so hard for so many CEOs to to do that? And I know they're focused on shareholder value, but as you well know, when an employee is happy and there's less turnover, there's less sick sick leave, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, when you have an employee who is happy, they work much harder and are more dedicated uh, than just about anybody. So why is that such a hard thing for individual CEOs to understand? I mean, I think there's really three, three key reasons for it. Number one is, yes, it is the short-term earnings. And if you're a public company and reporting earnings quarterly, there is the unfortunate situation in American capitalism that says, you know, uh, what have you done for me lately in terms of how investors look at companies? So that's one issue. A second issue is that uh, managers and leaders tend to manage what they can measure. And often the things that are easiest to measure are things like, you know, what's the compensation and it's hard to measure meaning. It's hard to measure recognition. It's hard to measure loyalty other than employee turnover as a metric for that. So generally speaking, companies, you know, when they say, let's benchmark, let's do a competitive benchmark for our employees, they're always talking about compensation, which is good because you want to make sure there's good benchmarking around compensation. But that's all they do. They don't look at benchmarking on anything else in terms of how 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 are our leaders doing and what they should say is, how are the employees, how happy are they? Show us your work climate surveys, your employee satisfaction surveys. And that's what I always do if I, when I bought hotels, bought companies is, you know, I, I want to look at the numbers for the employees first. But most companies don't do that. A lot of companies don't even measure that. So because, and frankly, sometimes the things that are easiest to measure are the things that are sort of at the base of the hierarchy of needs pyramid. And I would say thirdly, it's, you know, it's the training of business schools. Business schools are better than they used to be. For example, I, I'm, I was in my business school 40 years ago. 40 years ago, we barely talked about employees or employee satisfaction or culture. It's a bigger issue now. But the reality is, is that for, for so many decades, the, the classic business training was accounting, financial investments, and you know maybe strategy. But it was not so much the softer skills of business, which, quite frankly, are sometimes the hardest for business leaders to figure out. Well, they're the ones you can't easily quantify. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The other thing I have found interesting is if you look over the last few decades, you've seen companies give less and less to employees while the management gets paid more and more, especially the CEO. For sure. For sure. Do you have any uh, comments on that? You know, I, 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 I hate to say it. I, I call it the transition to ruthless capitalism, which, of course, causes ever-increasing income inequality, right? 
Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I'm CEO of a company I founded five years ago called the Modern Elder Academy, which I'm sure we'll get to. I haven't paid myself in, in the five years that we've been in business. <laughs> so I, I, I am trying to change the, the contra to the trend. <laughs> but I, this is a social enterprise, and that's part of the reason why I can do that and I want to do that. But yeah, it, it, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, what I will say is two things, and they, they will sound like they're sort of counterfactual. Number one is the CEO of a company has an enormous effect on a business, mostly on the culture, sometimes on the decision-making, less so on the operations, but very much in terms of they're the magnet for talent. So I don't want to underestimate how important a CEO hire can be and how effective, whether you have an effective or ineffective CEO, what the impact is on the company. So I'm arguing for the other side right now for a moment. But the problem with actually sort of looking at it in the heroic CEO kind of way and compensating a CEO in these just dastardly kind of ways, like so excessively, especially often when they don't perform, they have a contract that says, oh, you know, I I get paid out $15 million if I don't perform. It's like, okay, well, God, who has that kind of job? The problem with that is it is accentuating the idea that the predominant motivation tool for anyone in the company, including the CEO, is financial compensation. And I, I just think that that is so base and, and, and sort of lowest common denominator. So I, you know, you, we could try to, in the U.S., have, for public company CEOs, we could try to sort of have a, a ratio of 100 to 1, you, you know, the average employee versus the CEO. The problem with that is there will be so many other loopholes that will allow for something to happen that it's hard. But I, what, I, what I would love to see is, you know, obviously Yvonne Chouinard has been a recent, you know, role model of basically saying the only shareholder from Patagonia moving forward is the earth. And he was, you know, I know the person who was the CEO in his company. I also know the person who was the head of HR. And what I will say is that the idea of providing great incentives across the company, especially around the idea of equity shared around the company is really important. And I think any company that doesn't compensate all employees with some form of shares is a mistaken company. And I think, you know, companies like Starbucks long ago started doing that. And Starbucks has its faults as well. But I will say, you know, when a company actually provides shares to line level baristas, provides lots of educational funds to them as well, you know, you got to take your hat off to them because not all companies are bad. There are definitely companies that are in the sort of conscious capitalism movement that I actually think have been role models for others. Could you give a couple examples by chance? I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Patagonia is a great example. I think uh, Zappos was a great example. I don't know when, you know, since Tony Shea passed away, and but uh, I do know, having spent a lot of time there, how motivated and how much people love the culture. Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines was the second most unionized airline in America, and yet. We tend to hear CEOs sometimes say, oh, God, you don't want a service, a company with service employees who are unionized because they'll be just, they won't be good. Well, Southwest Airlines had the highest customer satisfaction ratings. You know, Joie de Vivre, the company I used to run, Kimpton, 
So I think there's a lot of companies, and, and even Starbucks. Starbucks ha- is having some union, unionization happening, and I would say that is a sign of the times more than anything. I don't know if it's specific to Starbucks just being a bad company. I think it's more a function of the uh, the fact that unionization is making a comeback because of all the reasons you cited. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Actually, maybe to just shift topics because you mentioned Tony Shea. It's interesting, right? Here's a fellow who created an incredible uh, corporate culture, who always spoke about happiness, but somehow got lost. What do you think happened to him? Or what is the danger for people in these types of situations, do you think? Well, I'm going to be really honest here, which is not something people will necessarily do in a situation like this, because it's recorded and people will hear it. But I love, I love Tony. Tony... I've written five books, and two of the five prefaces of my five books were written by Tony. First of all, Tony was an odd duck. Let's start with that. If anybody knew Tony, if you ever spent time with him, he was he was effectless. He didn't have a lot of emotional um, effect, affect, so he, he he held things close to the vest. He was very strategically minded and brilliant. The, I think some of the challenges that Tony found was sometimes, you know, the hedonic treadmill is an interesting thing. He was very successful at a very young age, having sold his first company to Microsoft, exceptionally successful with his Zappos, then decided he wanted to do something for downtown Las, Las Vegas, take a lot of his money and pour it into a, a rather visionary but somewhat quixotic project that got off the rails a little bit, his downtown Las Vegas project. And I will say during that time, Tony, I think, lost a little bit of a sense of reality. Number one is he had a lot of money, so he could be creating this new thing. The new thing wasn't catching on like his last two companies were. And so in some ways, he wanted loyalists in his midst. And I think he started having some sycophants, just like, being part of the Tony team and Tony was willing to try lots of different things to, you know, mind altering substances. And I, and I, I just think the combination of being in a bit of an echo chamber with some of the people around him, the mind altering substances might've, you know, having an affection for them too much. And at the end of the day, someone who's been that successful that early in life, and then maybe doesn't have a deep sense of joy as a result of it, might get to a place where they feel a little bit like a, a nihilist, you know, someone who maybe loses touch with what really matters in life. And um, I literally just this last weekend was with, I won't say who, but someone who is probably the closest to him in life. And I, I heard a few more things from this person uh, that helped me to see that I don't think that he tried, he didn't have a death wish, but I do think that he lived very hard on himself. And ultimately for those who don't know the Tony story, he was stuck in a shed that he couldn't open. It was on fire and he wasn't burned to death. He was, he lived for a few days afterwards, but his lungs were gone. So yeah, so I would say, you know, and, and I've recent, recently read this New York Times article about Anthony Bourdain. Well, there's another uh, 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 tortured soul, right, to uh, loved by everyone, but 
was a damaged soul, right? A damaged soul, and he was he had there was an element of him. He was in love with this woman. She would reciprocate, and she just wanted to leave him. But in his case, and I think in Tony's case as well, and this is part of the reason I created MEA because I lost five friends to suicide in the Great Recession back in two thousand eight to two thousand ten. All men, forty two to age fifty two. The bottom line is, I think both of them. There's a there's a risk for people especially if they are successful relatively young in life, that the identity that defines them becomes a straitjacket. And especially in the case of Anthony, that straitjacket is very much a public personality. So, I mean, Tony might be able to go out in public and not everybody would know him. Anthony Bourdain, most people knew him. And there was an, there's an element of like, how do we help people along the way, and we do it at MEA, at the Modern Elder Academy, in midlife, to disrobe those identities that are no longer serving them. Maybe it's an archetype of being the caregiver or the hero. Maybe it's being, that for me, the founder and CEO of Joie de Vivre, that for me, I didn't want to be it anymore, but I didn't know how to get rid of it. Um, And then I had an NDE, and my near-death experience actually woke me up. It was a wake-up call for, for the hotelier to say, I don't want to do this anymore. But we live in a culture where we get too identified often with what our business card says. And in so doing, we become somewhat limited in how we see our options. And in some cases, as it was true with Kate Spade, in essence, she killed herself because I believe she no longer wanted that identity of being this, the founder of Kate Spade, the, the brand. And she didn't know how to get rid of it because the name of the brand was her. That's interesting. Uh, uh, I think it's a two-edged sword, right? Uh, I mean, your fame comes from this personality or created personality, which people think they know, which is far different from who you are. And it's very hard to uh, walk that path, I think, sometimes. Uh, do you know Shep Gordon by chance? Why is that name familiar? Uh, he, uh, there's a book called Super Mensch, or there's a movie, a documentary that Mike Myers did. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, then he wrote a book, uh, I think I'm the Super Mensch, but he and I were chatting the other day. But he was the agent for like Alice Cooper and a number of very successful artists. And that was a challenge, you know? These people lived this character, which everybody identified with, but oftentimes they couldn't separate themselves, and there's a certain amount of baggage that went with that. And, you know, ultimately what happened, at least with Alice Cooper, was, you know, he ended up, of course, doing all sorts of drugs and things, went to rehab, and finally got his act together, and it was the separation of the Alice character from... Alice Cooper, right? And I think that's probably part of it. And as you said, some of the people who are extraordinarily successful have those attributes that make them totally successful, but again, have other deficiencies which cause them to feel lonely, isolated, and unable to uh, truly connect. Before we get to MEA, which I know you want to talk about, you know, you've written multiple books. You've mentioned one, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow Peak. Uh, of course, you've written Emotional Equations. You've written The Rebel Rules, Daring to Be Yourself in Business. And again, I think most recently, uh, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. From those books, though, what would you say is sort of the key message that you're trying to 
express or sort of, if you will, the takeaway? I think the takeaway is that the intersection of psychology and business is complex. And it's a roundabout that if you actually aren't adept at driving that roundabout, you'll crash. And yet there are very few operators out there. I'm an operator. Sometimes people are a consultant. Sometimes they're an observer and an academic. I'm a person who runs businesses who's also writing books. That is pretty weird and rare. And so my books are sort of academic in the sense that, you know, whether it's Maslow or Viktor Frankl or Eric Erickson or whomever, there's an element of psychology woven into the book that I'm teaching, but it's also in a practical um, application of how would someone use that. And I, you know, I'm a big believer in Dan Goldman's work who, you know, emotional intelligence, EQ, and he's been able to show that two thirds of the success of business leaders comes not from their IQ or from their resume uh, in terms of the amount of experience they have. It actually comes from their EQ. And so helping people understand psychology and business is maybe the most effective way to become a great leader is the common theme throughout the books. Well, it's interesting you say that because, of course, many academic institutions or companies want to hire the Harvard MBA versus sort of someone with incredible life experience who's been successful and getting those individuals sort of up to that level where they're actually seen, I think is more unusual versus throwing your resume out that say says, I have a Harvard or Stanford MBA. Yeah. I mean, I people are impressed by the filters. You know, life is full of filters and the filter of coming from Stanford or Harvard, you know, impresses a recruiter for sure. At the end of the day, my favorite recruiting question and I don't care where you came from. If you can't answer this well, I'm not going to hire you. My favorite question is, what's the number one way you're consistently misperceived in the workplace? And I love that question because it actually takes all of the packaging of yourself away and forces you to be self-aware enough and other-aware enough to know what's the gap between how you see yourself and how others see you. And then that takes us down a really interesting set of questions after that. So, yeah, I don't care where you went to college or business school. I do care how you answer that question. (laughs) Well, uh, I have two questions. (laughs) Have you seen this book called uh, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) You might like it. It's actually by two psychologists. But it actually talks about how people create a narrative of themselves, Yeah. which, of course, you know, if you're an asshole, frankly, you don't think of yourself that way. And actually, I think they interviewed 10 despots or former despots. And, you know, every (laughs) one of them said, I didn't murder anyone. Everything I did was for the better of the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, on some level, you can't move forward if you don't have some delusions about yourself. But I think... Uh, what you were saying is having this absolute honesty and self-awareness to understand the positive aspects and the negative aspects about you. And a lot of people, I think, don't have that. Plus, the other thing is, on some level, I think it has to do with authenticity. Because when you can be authentic with yourself and understand 
the positive aspects, the negative aspects, but also understand that regardless, you still deserve to be cared about and to be loved. And I think on, on some level, this is the uh, question of self-compassion. Why don't we switch over to something you'd like to talk about? <laughs> Which well, is the modern... do, it's what I'm doing today. I mean, let's be clear, though. With my, we're going to talk about Modern Elder Academy. But what led me to Modern Elder Academy was after I sold Joie de Vivre, after running it for 24 years, I went to work 10 years ago with the three young founders of Airbnb, this little tech startup in San Francisco where I was based. And I mean, I thought they had a stupid idea for a business, but you know, of course they didn't. And I ended up for seven and a half years, four years, full-time, three and a half years as the primary strategic advisor to the founders, helping them take this weird idea to becoming the world's most valuable hospitality company. In that process, they started calling me the modern elder. They said, Chip, you're as curious as you are wise. And that's when I said, okay, well, I, at first I didn't love the idea of being a modern elder, but I was twice the age of the average person there. And so after I was done with my full-time work there, I decided to go and I decided to write a book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And while I was writing that book down here in Southern Baja in Mexico, about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas, I had a home on the beach here. I had this Baha Aha one day, an epiphany, which was, why do we not have midlife wisdom schools, places where people can go and reimagine and repurpose themselves in midlife? Because if we're living longer and people are often staying in the workplace longer by choice and necessity, we need places where people can do a midlife pit stop. And as Mary Catherine Bateson says, uh, a midlife atrium where you can reflect on how you want to live the second half of your adult life and what you want to do. So that's what we did five years ago. And we've had 3,000 alumni from 40 countries and 26 regional chapters around the world. Wow, that's, a, that's amazing. How does somebody connect with the Modern Elder Academy and sort of what are the criteria to participate? Because I know a lot of listeners really would be very interested in this. Yeah, well, first of all, let's talk about what is a wisdom school. I mean, it, my definition of wisdom, I think you'll appreciate because it includes compassion in the definition. I think wisdom is metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. So what we're trying to do is help people understand how do they cultivate and harvest their experience or their wisdom over the course of a few decades of living and, and working. And then how do we help them reframe their relationship with aging, shift to a growth mindset, understand how to navigate midlife transitions, and look at life as a regenerative journey, not a retiring journey. So people who come here tend to be in the midst of a transition. The average age of people who come is 54, but we've had people as young as 28 and as old as 88. And so it's a wide range. 15% of the people who come to MEA are, are millennials. But like we have a millennial here this week, and he's a pro football player. He was in the NFL for six years. What do you do when you retire from the NFL? You know what? For 80% of them, you end up in debt and bankruptcy and maybe addicted to something and divorced three times. Uh, absolutely. Well, I think part of that unfortunately has to do with baggage they've carried from childhood, which never has been addressed. And then the other aspect is the only thing they know is being a professional athlete. And beyond that, 
they have no definition of anything. That's the identity. And there's an identity. And, and you know, they were, they're a PIP, a PIP, a previously important person. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it's hard to be a PIP, especially if you're in your mid-30s. So long story short is a lot of the people who come down are uh, in transition. Over half the people are on some form of financial aid we give them. So there's a lot of socioeconomic diversity. And there are a variety of ways people engage with us. They come to a workshop in Baja or they, we have eight, you know, eight-week online programs like per, the Purpose Course or the Transitions Course that are sort of like you know a Baja kind of experience, but it's you know in in your home. And then soon we'll have two work two retreat centers in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which will open next year and the following year. Wow, that's fantastic. Let me ask you, you mentioned something sort of in passing, and you mentioned NDE, which of course is near-death experience, and you didn't really expound much on that. I don't know if you had an opportunity to read my book. I had one of those myself. Maybe for me, I didn't get enough insight. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, tell me about yours and how it affected you. So let me, yeah, let me paint the landscape. So I was 47 years old. It was the worst time of my life. You know, I was, interestingly enough, the U-curve of happiness social science research shows that 47.2 is the lowest point of, hap of adult life satisfaction. And I, yeah, this, this was happening to me 15 years ago. And I can tell you 47.2 was when it was really bad. Um, so I, everything was, that could go wrong. I had a long-term relationship ending. I had a foster son who's African-American going to prison wrongfully. I had a company that was running out of money, and I didn't want to be doing it anymore. I didn't like the identity. I wanted to get rid of my identity. I just I felt sort of terrible across the board. And then I started losing friends to suicide. My The first friend I lost of the five was um, a guy named Chip, Chip Hankins. And how weird that my best friend named Chip takes his own life at a time where I was having some suicide ideation myself. So I broke my ankle at a bachelor party. Gavin Newsom's bachelor party playing baseball. <laughs> was this to was this when he was married when he was this, married? This is, uh, when he, this is when he was mayor and married to no, this is he he had gotten rid of you know Guilfoyle. <laughs> yes. Got, so he's getting remarried. He's getting remarried to Jennifer, who he's still met, married to. But and then I broke my ankle, got a, and I had a cut on my leg, had a bacterial infection on my in my leg. I was put on a strong antibiotic. I should have just stayed at home. I should have listened to Dr. Doty and say, Chip, you should stay at home. But I didn't. But you instead, didn't. <laughs> instead, I went out on the road because it was soon after my book Peak came out. And I was giving a speech in St. Louis. And I had a, I was very nauseous during the speech. I was on crutches and um, something wasn't working. And I fortunately sat down to sign books. And then I went unconscious and ended up on the ground. And a few minutes later, I came to five minutes later, the paramedics showed up soon after that. And when they put me on the gurney, it was the first time of nine times that I went flatline. And what was happening is I was having a, a, an allergic reaction to Augmentin, which was the um, antibiotic I was on. But who knew at the time? And for the next three days, I was in, uh, or actually two, two nights, I was in a St. Louis hospital as they were doing all kinds of, you know, like tests on me. And I had Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning in my, you know, day pack. And, you know, I'd read it before many times, but I never read it after having an NDE uh, and multiple NDEs. And so it, it, I, that's when I first came up with this emotional equation, despair equals suffering minus meaning. 
So if suffering is ever present, which is, you know, the first noble truth of Buddhism, then if the math equation is despair and meaning are inversely proportional to each other. So because I know the listeners want to hear like, what was it like? What was it like? So my experience of my NDE was floating in the air like a bird, but more like an angel in a large living room in like a chalet in the mountains with an enormous skylight where the light was coming in and it was just the most precious, beautiful light. And it was, it was creating a kaleidoscope on the wall, colorful, like rainbow kaleidoscope. And I was smelling this frangipani scented um, oil. So my, my senses were everything. Like I, I was exceptionally sensory. There were no people there, but there were birds. And I could just, I could hear like animals, like in a very, beautiful kind of way. Not Nothing was dangerous. But the thing that was most noticeable to me was that beautiful wood floor had this frangipani scented oil, deep, thick oil, viscous oil that was slowly moving across the, uh, the floor, starting to go down a set of stairs. And I think what I took from that, I mean, first of all, I took beauty from that. I took sensuality from that. But I think the thing that I most needed to take from that was slow down because that oil was so beautiful, so beautiful scent. And it was moving at a very slow pace. And my, my world was very fast paced. So I came out of that. And the number one thing I remembered was that when I opened a hotel called the Hotel Vitali in San Francisco, which was one of our Joanneville hotels, the slippers in that hotel said slow on one slipper and down on the other. And I went to the hotel. When I got back to San Francisco, I got a pair of those slippers. I brought them home and I started living a slow down lifestyle. And within two years, I'd sold the company at the bottom of the great recession. It was a terrible time to sell the company, but I knew for my own life support, I needed that. And I was meditating every single day and going on Vipassana retreats during that time. And I moved up the U-curve of happiness. So there you go. As we wrap up, tell me about Viktor Frankl, Life Search for Meaning, and what did you get out of that that also helped you see the world in a different way? Well, first of all, if you're having a bad month, year, week, or year, whatever, <laughs> read that first half of that book. It, the first half of the book is basically his story of what it was like to be in a concentration camp in World War II as a Jewish psychologist who believed prior to going into the camp in logotherapy, which basically believes that the fuel of life is meaning. So I think don't pity yourself when, you know, go read that damn book and you'll say, oh, my life's not so bad. But I think the other thing is there's a quote that is quoted from him, but it's not in the book. And, but it is, it really describes the book in many ways because the second half of the book is his definition of meaning. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is your power to choose your response. And in your response lies your growth and your freedom. So in in essence, what he's saying is whatever's happening in life, whatever circumstances are happening, you can choose to not react, but instead to respond. And you can create a space. And the, the more space you can create through the practices of mindfulness, for example, the more you're able to not be the fly on the back of the dog's tail that is just, you know, at the will of 
whatever's happening for that dog. And so many of us are, are in a situation where I, I actually, I do believe strongly that the reason midlife is called a crisis is because people are going through a lot of transitions and often their identities they're supposed to disrobe from. And the circumstances that are happening are almost karmic for them to realize they are supposed to change. And so I don't call the midlife crisis a crisis anymore. I call it the midlife chrysalis because midlife for a butterfly is the chrysalis. And it is in that dark, gooey space that the transformation happens uh, between caterpillar and butterfly. And I, that, that is what I think Frankl taught me. Well, you know, uh, within the chrysalis, as the cells liquefy, there's a small number called imaginal cells, right? Exactly. The imaginal discs. They were there in the caterpillar. So in the caterpillar, there was the transformation within it. You know, I have to tell you, I never knew that term until somebody sent me a paper that was uh, uh, written, which described these, and they named their foundation after that, which is actually based on compassion and happiness and finding meaning. And I said, who would name this imaginal cells when no one knows what it means except, you know, I had to go look it up. And obviously, you know what it means. But I think for 99% of people, that uh, is not a term that uh, they're commonly aware of. So, Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, listen, thanks for uh, sharing your wisdom. It's always a pleasure. I hope to come out to MEA uh, sometime. I know uh, we have many friends in common. And uh, I have a lot of respect uh, for what you're doing. And uh, thank you for spending some time with me today. Thanks, Jim. You've always been a role model for me. So um, thank you. Well, that's very kind of you. I appreciate that. And be well. And I know we'll see each other in the not too distant future. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts. Or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.